We would like to hope that the present series will advance two useful purposes. One is to contribute something to our historical and philosophical orientation in relation to ancient man, and the second to unfold a more or less comprehensive method for approaching highly controversial issues. We know that the Atlantean hypothesis is held to be a simple, inevitable fact by some who are unfortunately in a position where they cannot too strongly sustain their positions. It is also held to be a myth by others who have inadequate means of supporting their negative point of view. Thus actually, we are in the presence of a mystery story, a story which must be examined in the weight of such evidence as is available, recognizing with Aristotle that rational evidence is acceptable in any learned group. In other words, the workings of the reasoning faculties can as truly and completely demonstrate a fact as so-called scientific method. Nearly all so-called scientific fact has either come from reasoning process or led to it. Therefore, the facts, apart from reason, lose most of their utility. But reason, if trained, may achieve facts not demonstrable on the level of academic observation or experimentation. Thus we must try throughout this entire series to estimate our values, to gather such evidence as can be gathered, to interpret it with a largest of spirit which is consistent with good sense, thoughtfulness, and thoroughness. We are not seeking to attain an easy believing, but also we are not interested in denying merely because others have denied, or doubting because doubts are fashionable. What then is our basic problem? This problem deals with the existence of a comparatively important culture group at a time which we would generally regard as prehistoric. Perhaps better we should say that this group stands in the dim dawn light between prehistory and history. The moment we begin to consider this period, we learn several important negative facts. The first is that in spite of our achievements in many branches of learning, we have not been especially successful in pushing back the boundaries of history. We divide the world now into two distinct groups or periods, one historic and the other prehistorical. About prehistorical eras in general, we have a fair knowledge. We know something of the primitive man. We have the Piltdown skull, the Neanderthal jaw, and things of this kind, uh, which tell us 
that at a remote period the primitive ancestors of humanity lived upon this earth struggled against the natural hazards of their times fought monstrous animals and perished into limbo leaving but primary and rudimentary artifacts or remnants of their survival by geology we come to some knowledge and uh, by the further aid of ethnology and anthropology we have a picture of the remote world we also have a fair picture of the modern world from the rise of the civilizations of Egypt and those which flourished in the valley of the Euphrates down to the present time it is this strange shadowy interval between the prehistoric world and the historical world that we know that gives us the most baffling problem we are unable to trace the emergence of civilized man as we know him we are also confronted with a curious circumstance that historical research sustains namely that for the most part history is the continuing record of the collapse of systems of cultures the decay of peoples the decline of nations the disintegration of empires history is almost an unbroken record of things dying fading away falling into neglect and oblivion thus our history of races is a history of decline and fall scattered around the earth are the prehistoric records and remnants of peoples called the old people these peoples we have neither any clear way of envisioning nor can we adequately re reconstruct their mode of life for the most part the records and remains of these people are to be found in stone carving or monument to such we must add the usual accumulation of the ancient rubbish pile broken pots ancient decorations primitive implements and equally primitive ornamentations yet as we look around through these early shadowy remnants of things we see flashes of considerable cultural insight we do not know where this insight came from but we observe a strange conglomeration of things extremely primitive and flashes of high genius uh, the artists who ornamented the interior of the caves of Spain with and France with their prehistoric drawings were not strictly speaking amateurs today modern art is seeking to capture the vitality expressed in these ancient prehistoric paintings the masters of old architecture who have left the ruins of temples shrines cities and monumental statues and memorials in various parts of the world were not strictly savages they possessed an unusual ingenuity they also revealed considerable mathematical astronomical scientific skill who were they where did they come from and where did they go one would think that persons specializing in these fields would be so intrigued 
by this riddle that they would be impelled to examine it, to give it greater consideration. This might well have been the case had it not been the scientific world rapidly developed a mass hypothesis, a grand strategy, and was content to permit supposedly or obviously irreconcilable factors uh, to remain comparatively unconsidered. It was much easier to ignore certain evidence than to change the grand concept which would not include it in a satisfactory manner. I think the problem in Mexico is indicative of the general train of thought. Down in the civilizations that extend from central Mexico practically to Peru, uh, there are several schools of archaeology that have been hard at work for many years. Uh, these schools can be roughly divided into three groups of thinkers. We will call them the American, the German, and the Mexican. Uh, these three schools represent three degrees of caution. And wherever we come in contact with these groups, we have more or less the same experience. Not far from the city of Mexico are the famous pyramids of the sun and moon at San Monteo Tehuacan. These pyramids, which most of you have seen at least reproduced in pictures, are monumental structures, obviously planned, well executed by a highly intelligent group of artisans and architects. So we can assume that we meet three of these archaeologists standing at the foot of the Pyramid of the Sun. We turn to the American archaeologist and we say, when were these pyramids built? And if he is a forthright man, he will say, probably, we really do not know. But you must certainly have some opinion on the matter. Oh, yes, we have that. Where facts are few, opinions are numerous. Well, when do you think they were built? Well, I would think, says the American archaeologist, that they were probably built about the 12th century A.D., perhaps the 10th. And if we want to get very, very optimistic and run into danger of strong criticism from headquarters, we can suspect perhaps as early as the 7th or 8th century. But certainly, they are post-Christian in their monumental construction. Well, why do you say that? Well, we say it because it was not until the rise of the Tarascan peoples and other groups in the great plateau of Mexico until they had reached a certain culture level they could not have produced these monuments. They have to be recent. So you then turn to the Mexican archaeologist and you say, what is your opinion? And he will say, well, we do not really know either. But uh, from our researching and from our thought, we suspect that these monuments are older than the American school believes. We would like to suspect that these monuments might go back a thousand, maybe two thousand years before the Christian era, and that they were built by peoples who preceded the historical group in the Valley of Mexico. This assumes, of course, the existence of a pre-Aztec culture in this area. And uh, according to the German viewpoint, the existence of such a culture is intimated in the remaining records of the Mahua peoples, for they distinctly seem to imply that these monuments were ancient at the time when they first 
reached the great plateau of Mexico. So the German scientist is inclined to be a little more generous. Then you turn to the Mexican scientist, who actually is in a strange way in the best condition and position to understand the achievements of his own people. He has had his ear to the ground for a long time, is well aware of the legendary and lore that are definitely parts of the descent of our records in this region. And with a typical Mexican shrug of the shoulders, he will say, we do not know when they were built, senor. It is our opinion that perhaps they were built 8,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. But we are convinced that they are far more ancient than has been suspected. And that the only reason why the present fashion is to insist that they are recent is because our whole concept of culture is based upon the concept that man's a more recent state indicates a superior attainment. Therefore, that the man of the dawn of time could not have produced such monuments. Our picture of him does not permit him to have such ingenuity and advancement. But remember that we have no picture of this man except the one we ourselves have invented so that we are really locked by our own invention. We have come to a conclusion and we are trying to make the fat facts fit into the conclusion. In other words, we are reasoning from a conclusion and not toward one. This is generally speaking the attitude in nearly all parts of the world relating to ancient monuments. The modern materialistic school insisting upon everything being recent. The more conservative Teutonic mind being a little slower to arrive at such an end or finding. And the native peoples, whether scholarly or unscholarly, uniting in the concept of an extraordinary antiquity to certain of their most famous monumental structures. We do, of course, in some cases, enjoy native records. Our present tendency, however, is to assume that most natives are liars from the beginning, that either they have no knowledge of their own antiquity or have gone off into romancing and into myth and folklore to the degree that their records are not reliable. Actually, however, when we go back beyond a certain point, we have only mythology, only legendary, and only lore. If we eliminate these completely, we simply have no contact at all with man prior to the, pre, uh, to the dynastic rise in Egypt. Thus we can say that some of these buildings may be recent, some of them may be ancient. Explorations on the site of the Great Pyramid of Kukulkan at Chichen Itza on the peninsula of Yucatan now indicates one building under another and various estimates of from 9 to 15 structures inside of that one temple have already been advanced indicating a sacred site rebuilt or overbuilt many times over a vast period of history. Thus, by degrees, the need for a concept of a culture, a comparatively advanced culture, appears over the horizon as we begin to seek reasonable or rational explanations for familiar things. So much for the physical level of our functioning. Now let us move to an entirely different the theater of consideration. A different area requiring penetration. We are completely confused as to the origin of language. We have some rather skillful thoughts about it, 
but still we are unable to explain a number of important things. We accept much, question little, and hope for the best. On another level, equally important, we are without any adequate knowledge as to the origin of the sciences that we now consider basic. Who invented mathematics and when? This question would really uh, probably prove disconcerting even to the best historian of mathematics. We simply do not know. Wherever we find the person or the condition which seems to suggest origination, we immediately strike a legend or immediately strike a statement of that person that his knowledge was derived from some other source. We cannot pin down the original of these different forms of learning. This is especially true when we turn from history to Stonehenge or to the great Druidic or pre-Druidic monuments in Brittany in France. Here immense mazes, tremendous architectural structures covering huge areas and arranged with considerable mathematical skill must certainly precede the periods in which we believed mathematics to be available to man. We are therefore searching religiously, philosophically, scientifically, ethnologically, anthropologically for the beginning of the human race. Not its physical beginning, merely as creature, but the beginning of its ascent from savagery or a primitive state uh, to the levels or to the platforms which can come within investigation by available instruments. Where then can we turn? The, probably the only way we can turn is this, that in which most have turned, who have sought to penetrate the almost intentional wall of oblivion that has been built up by opinion, attitude, and prejudice between us and the origin of our own culture. Men like Baron de Prorock, seeking vestiges of ancient foundations off the coast of Europe. Men like Leo Frobenius, seeking the solution of the mystery of Africa. These men instinctively associate their problem with a prehistorical empire or a prehistorical diffusion of high culture and have found it convenient to accept uh, the general term Atlantean to suggest that culture in the light of the celebrated account left by Plato. So let us think for a moment about Plato's record as we are to deal first in our first evening with the Greek-Egyptian foundation of the Atlantic fable. We have every reason to believe that the discussion of the Atlantic island contained in the writings of Plato arose from the maturity of his years and has been preserved for us in the collected works of one of the greatest minds and the most admired intellects that humanity has produced. It would be difficult indeed to assume that the author of The Statesman and The Republic, the man whose mind so accurately and astutely estimated nearly every social and human problem could have merely been fictionalizing or have been himself easily deceived by some legend or lore. 
The actual story of Atlantis, as recorded by Plato, came to him from one of his disciples, a young man descended from the old Athenian lawgiver Solon. Solon, who flourished about the 6th century BC, was one of the seven wise men of Greece. And it is very important to realize at this time that Solon is not included among philosophers, nor is he considered a mystic. He is not regarded as a scientist, and he was certainly not a theologian. Solon was exactly uh, what our modern semantic association with the word Solon would indicate. He was a statesman. As a statesman, he was bound to the political and physical problems of his country. His primary contribution to Athenian life was his solution to the problem of the mortgage stones, which were heaped up on the corners of land to indicate various easements and various financial liens upon the properties. As during the course of centuries these properties changed hands and were mortgaged and remortgaged, a situation of considerable complication arose. The heaps of mortgage stones became so large there was no land left to till. So Solon had to fight with the problem of the ancestral and historical indebtedness of the Greek peoples. He solved this rather neatly and also is remembered as the man who liberated the Grecians from the unhappy and difficult law permitting imprisonment for debt. It was not until the Middle Ages in Europe that this law was revived, and we are happy to say that it is now gone. If it wasn't gone today, there'd be no one out of jail. <laughs> now, uh, Solon visited Egypt because of the general respect of the Grecians for the political and diplomatic skill of the Egyptian rulers. Egypt was a theocracy, uniting in the person of the pharaoh both priest and king. Egypt was also deeply versed in ancient laws and had a very skillfully developed system of legislation and jurisprudence. Solon went there, not in order to discover lost continents, but to find out some way to remove the mortgage stones. It was during this trip that the priests of Sais communicated to him the legend of the lost Atlantis. Solon was profoundly affected by the story, which he undoubtedly received as an historical fact. He was shown a pillar of mysterious metal, which was said by these priests to have been erected prior to the destruction of Atlantis, and to have carved upon its face in hieroglyphics the story of the great catastrophe. So on, hastening back to Greece, became involved in the proper administration of his statescraft problems. Being a man of advanced years, he tells us that he was unable to advance and philosophize the story of Atlantis. He therefore left it as he had received it, in record only, passing it on to his descendants. And one of these descendants finally brought it to the attention of Plato. The record has also some dating. Solon, as we say, flourished about 600 B.C. And according to the ancient story, the Atlantic invasion of the Greek states occurred about 9,000 years before the birth of Solon. This would put it somewhat in the neighborhood of 11,500 years ago. This kind of dating brings us into an arena of timing in which modern man has almost no records. 
a period in which, however, it is inconceivable to him that a great culture could have flourished. Remember, this culture was important in the terms of the Greeks and Egyptians. Therefore, we have every reason to assume that whatever this Atlantean culture was, it was not like ours, but if it had a parallel, would have been more like that of those ancient nations of four, five, or six thousand years ago, with, with which we have some historical acquaintance. According to the Egyptians, uh, the Atlanteans attempted the conquest of Europe. And in the course of this conquest, they moved apparently without opposition until they reached the Greek area. And here they had their first serious adversary. During the wars and struggles which ensued, the Atlantic continent sank, leaving the armies that had reached Europe and undoubtedly had permeated a large part of the European area without a homeland, without any place to return. Also, undoubtedly, at that time, this disaster was far less significant than it would have been in terms of a modern military expedition. Even 4,000 years ago, and certainly five or six, Armies did not move as bodies of military people. They moved as migrations of total social groups. The army or the leader leading an expedition into a remote area carried with him all his worldly goods, his family, his livestock, everything necessary for his survival. It is quite likely that in many of those older campaigns, uh, the original members of the expedition, even had they been spared or were they spared in war, would never return home. It would be their great-grandchildren who might return, if any, because there was almost no contact between these migrant armies and the land from which they originated. Uh, they might well settle in some new region and never go back, becoming the nucleus of a new culture group. So it is not so likely that the Atlantean armies uh, were gravely perturbed by the destruction of their homeland. They may have already been away from it a hundred, two hundred years, with little memory by descent of the original area, and that memory already highly dramatized and romanticized. Plato and the Egyptians both failed to tell us what happened to the migrant armies of the Atlantean expeditionary forces. Obviously, they could not go home. They seemed to disappear, and they disappeared at time thousands of years before the Trojan War. Some have advanced the possibility that these Atlantean migrants finally come into historical memory as the Egyptian people, that perhaps the Egyptians were these Atlanteans, that they gradually took over this area, bringing with them the cultural background of previous achievement. This might explain why we have no clear evidence of the origin of arts or sciences in Egypt. Why it also happens that the earliest Egyptian records indicate a people highly advanced, culturally, scientifically, philosophically, and religiously. We do not know where these people came from, nor do we know where the Atlanteans went. On the same ground, we have comparatively little knowledge of a primitive state of Europe 
We have some. We can envision the Europe of the Goths and the Vandals. But far deeper than these records are the ancient cultural institutions of the Druids and of the various Bardic orders that were behind uh, the common ways of things. The Druids were a very learned people, as Caesar testifies. Where did they derive their learning? It has been common to assume that they had some connection with Asia. How? Where? When? None of these questions are adequately answered. Solon, in his legend, or the story which he received, therefore gives an almost starkly simple report that at a certain time these invasions took place. He does not dramatize them in his own story what, in any way whatever. Nor does he imply that the Egyptians, a rather factual people, dramatized the story. They presented it to him as a simple historical account, but unfortunately did not give him the details which might have clarified the whole issue. Later, when the descendant of Solon provided the material for the famous dialogue, the Critias of Plato, we find the master of philosophy moving in upon the fable. Plato gives us an account far more explicit than that of Solon, in much greater detail and with much more glamour. Where did Plato secure the material for this embellishment? No one knows. This embellishment, however, follows in itself a kind of pattern. It fo follows the pattern of Greek mythology. It assumes, therefore, that when the twelve deities divided the earth, that the seas and the great oceans were assigned to the deity Poseidon, and that from him and from his descendants, came the mysterious empire of Posidonius. Thus, Plato, borrowing again from mythology, declares that Atlas, the man who carried the world on his shoulders, was an ancient Atlantean king. And he further, Plato further, points out the tremendously vital code of laws uh, given by Poseidon to his people and to his children, the laws which became the basis of the great legislative system of the Atlantean state. <coughs> These laws, incidentally, are practically identical with those set forth in the basic code of the great Babylonian Chaldean system, the code of Hammurabi. Thus we have Plato implying that a great culture, a powerful religion, important mysteries or secret religious institutions originated in this great Atlantean nation. Plato then explains to us something that, can it be demonstrated, would be of the greatest importance. He speaks strongly of the maritime achievements of the Atlantean peoples. The great city of the Golden Gates on the island of Atlantis was actually a vast harbor. And into this harbor came the shipping of the Atlanteans who were a great mercantile people. Their boats and galleys and crafts went throughout the world merchandising, bartering, exchanging, trading. Plato does not specifically state colonizing, but let us move it there for a moment and consider what might be implied. 
a factual story gives us some help. We know that the Chaldeans at a comparatively early period uh, sailed along the coasts of Western Europe, reaching as far as Britain and the Scandinavian countries to engage in the merchandising of tin. And we know that wherever these ancient expeditions came and visited, they left not only the immediate objects of barter, but a cultural impact upon the peoples that they visited. In other words, wherever the Chaldeans bartered, they left something of their philosophy and their culture, further testified to by the experiences of Caesar in interrogating the wise people of Gaul and Brittany. Thus the migration of a great mercantile project traveling into very far areas would certainly imply the establishment of trading centers, trading posts, outposts of one kind or another, and even permanent settlements. The trader is always the same, and along the routes of his journey he leaves indelible impressions of his vices, his virtues, and his achievements. This brings us to another important situation. Is Plato romancing? Was it possible for an Atlantean merchant fleet to travel any extraordinary distance? Two questions then present themselves. What was the general geographical state of the Atlantic area at this time? Assuming that the central mountains of the Atlantean continent island, which may have been nearly as large as Australia, Perhaps this area was connected with islands or other smaller, unsubmerged, uh, scattered fragments of land, so that contact between Europe and America, by means of this continent and islands, might not have been a great challenge to navigation. The Seminole Indians in Florida have record of a land bridge that once extended all the way from America to Europe. While we may want to think that the Seminoles are not the world's outstanding historians, and there is some ground for this opinion, on the other hand, the Seminoles, like most primitive people, have no reason to misrepresent. It is meaningless to them. There is nothing to be gained, no purpose whatever, because they are not solving any problem and they were in need of no hypothesis. They were only telling the story of their people. They were preserving the record of some migration of their own ancestors, which they regarded as worth preserving. Another point in this situation is what would be the probabilities of navigation by primitive instruments such as old galleys, sailing boats, or even canoes. There are at the present time in the Polynesian Islands huge canoes which have cruising range of over 2,000 miles. This therefore tells us that long journeys were not impossible. We know that these canoes are really, in skillful hands, far more practical, serviceable, and efficient than the tiny ships with which Columbus crossed the ocean. That the ancients had the possibility of ships equal to or better than those of Columbus, we have no reason to doubt. The Egyptians, during the uh, dynasties of the Ptolemies, had a great galley of state in which they entertained distinguished guests. 
which had not only sails, but three banks of oars, two swimming pools, and a grove of live fruit trees on the deck. We are not informed as to just how seaworthy the ship was, but at the same time, the idea of large vessels certainly goes back much earlier than the rise of the Hamburg-American line. Also, it was not important that such journeys be rapid or immediate, because these people were not leaving relatives at home that they wished to get back to by the holidays. When they left, they probably never expected to return, so they took their relatives with them. The Japanese are convinced that exploration from their shores as early as the 12th century reached by degrees as far south as Lima in Peru. And we know that on certain currents it is very certain the Chinese reached the coast of California at least 600 B.C. Therefore, empirically, we cannot say that a considerable mercantile could not have existed, especially if the distances to be traveled were greatly reduced by a large land area in the midst of what is now the ocean. Perhaps there was no area that would have required any unusual means of travel. Even as we can follow the Aleutian Islands and things of that nature and make a reasonably safe trip from the Western Hemisphere to Asia. These considerations, then, do not tell us that Plato would have been romancing unduly. He was aware of the strength of the then existing Greek fleet. He also knew of the Egyptian navy and what it had accomplished and what it could accomplish. He knew that people far less skillful and less strategically placed had also conquered a smaller sea of their own, the Mediterranean. All these things were matters of degrees, not involving any major policy change. Let us assume then for a moment that in the course of their mercantile activity, trading and bartering for some reason, Plato does not, does not tell us what they were seeking to merchandise. Perhaps like many powerful nations, they had built up a great level of luxury in their own culture, and that their people and their nation, which probably numbered some 60 million at its height, was a tremendous market for rare and remarkable goods from strange places. And even as the Assyrians are known to have brought foods, spices, and fine fabrics seven and eight thousand miles for their luxury use, we do not know that it could not that it could not be that the Atlanteans wished to trade in these materials for their own enjoyment or for the raising of their own cultural level. But almost certainly, some kind of colonization had to accompany a large expanding program of mercantile. We have in the more recent times of our own world the same situation arising. The expanding power of the British Empire in the 17th and 18th centuries resulted in a vast colonization program, the establishment of such groups as the Virginia Company, the Hudson's Bay Company, the East India Company, and others for the purpose of distributing these various wares which could be gathered from other countries. The uh, gathering of the material in these other countries required central storage areas such as the treaty ports that were set up along the coast of China in the closing years of the last century. Such programs 
most have carried with them cultural infusion. Every colonizing program in the last thousand years has spiritually, morally, intellectually, and culturally affected all peoples involved in this colonization. And in spite of the fact that only selfishness may have dominated the original program, these colonizing plans have always finally resulted in the raising of native levels and have opened the way for the future independence of these once colonized and dominated groups. We have no reason, therefore, to assume that Plato was mad or completely impractical. If he tells us something which we have seen repeated a hundred times since and have seen repeated by peoples of a much more complicated nature and with situations that might have suggested other means of handling, but we have still followed the old traditional ways. If then it is conceivable that this Atlantic center did have a broad area which like the spokes of a wheel moving outward from the central hub finally diverged to an incredible rim area. We have one possible answer to the question of how almost completely isolated peoples among whom there is no historical record of contact and who have been separated by what appeared to be impassable intervals of mountains, land, or water could have at approximately the same time been enriched by certain basic additions to their ways of life. In thinking of this, let us turn to these some of these peoples. Even the Greeks do not or did not believe that they originated their own culture. They said that their culture came to them by a mysterious person from a distant place. If you go into the Polynesians, if you go into the Northwestern American Indians, or the Southwest Indians, or the Old Iroquois League, or the Plains Indians, if you go into the Eskimos, uh, culture, or to China, Japan, India, Persia, Syria, Assyria, Egypt, there is not one of these culture groups that will take the responsibility for having originated its own culture. This is important. While we have only myths to work with, that is true, every one of these groups of myths tell essentially the same origin story, that the peoples came from elsewhere, that they came with leaders, who had led them from some previous location, that these leaders were responsible for the establishment of higher orders of culture in primitive areas. Thus the natural or aboriginal peoples of these areas all insist that their cultures began with the advent of divine beings who came from remote places, from a long distance, from other lands. These remote beings did not resemble the people to whom they came. They wore different clothing, they spoke a different language. But in each case they brought ideas, and from these ideas the cultures of these local groups derived their impulse and their inspiration. Now when you find this scattered throughout the earth and you find almost identical cultures developing around these myths so that Max Miller, the great German Orientalist, was actually correct when he said that there was never a false religion unless a child is a false man, that all these people came to the same basic ideas and that as cultures developed, they de developed around identical institutions. 
the astronomy of India, although we do not know where it came from, is not essentially different from the astronomy of Egypt, nor is it different from that of China, nor of that of Greece. And European astronomy is indebted to this entire background. Even in languages, identical words are to be found. Dr. Laplonion, exploring both Egypt and the Western Hemisphere, made a list of hundreds of Maya words, he knew the language, which were identical with Egyptian words of same meaning. And also he made many drawings of glyphs, which show that the Egyptian words and glyphs for certain objects were identical with the words and glyphs assigned to them in the Western Hemisphere. The only answer to this is that there was a migration of ideas. And uh, Plato's hypothesis seems to provide us with an adequate explanation for this migration of ideas. Furthermore, we find no evidence among other peoples of any mass migrational efforts. There is no other people known on the earth today in the mythology of which we find any clearly defined statement that that people was responsible for a powerful inflection of world culture. In other words, the Greeks do not say that they educated the Western Hemisphere. The Egyptians do not say that they ever had anything to do with China. India does not claim that it is responsible for Central American civilization. Nor can the Central American civilization, dear old Dr. Plongen to the contrary, nevertheless, actually claim that it was responsible for the rise of Syria, Palestine, the Near East, and the emirs of Afghanistan. No existing people meets the need of the problem at hand, nor does any existing people claim to ever have fulfilled that need. And though their myths be many, this type of mythology is not to be found. But the mythology that someone else came to them is universally present. One of the difficulties, of course, that we confront in all of these situations is the comparatively recent rise of a trustworthy chronological system. We have a reasonable system in China by which we can push back dates two or three thousand years before the Christian era, but after that we are dissipated in mythology again. We can integrate the concept of Egyptian dating perhaps six to seven thousand years. In India we are not quite so fortunate as far as chronological material is concerned. The Maya chronological system, which is perhaps one of the most perfect in the world, has only a comparatively recent history in the Western Hemisphere, and their own system of chronology implies definitely that it was set up elsewhere long before. But we do not have any trustworthy system of dating. We cannot raise the question, therefore, what were these people doing 10,000 years ago? We have no chronology to assist us to differentiate these periods. In fact, we could not spot them within several thousands of years. Thus, we have only legendary. We have only the concept of the long, long ago. We are back to the most elusive of all dates, once upon a time, where every legend, fairy story, and fragment of folklore has its beginning. This once upon a time, however, has one interesting demonstrable element. This once upon a time is related to area. 
And we are able to gather to some degree a picture of timing from location. <coughs> 